0: and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Ellen. All right. It's good to see your faces here this afternoon. It's a beautiful weekend. This weather is finally getting into perfection land for a while. (laughs) The good life. There it is. We found it out. It took us 12 weeks. We finally found it. Here it is. Perfect (laughs) Perfect timing. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this afternoon, and we um, bring our burdens to you, and we bring our hopes and our our dreams and our goals, uh, we bring our visions of what we want to happen um, and what we hope will happen. We have things that are broken, things that need to be fixed. Um, we bring joys and sorrows uh, here into this room, even just us here, full of um. The pain of living in this world. And so we come to you today looking for hope and joy. We ask that now, as we look in your word, that you would uh, strengthen us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what you have for us to see in your word. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have a prop today. This is my prop. I don't normally have props, but Andy, I'm so sorry. Yeah, this is this probably looks to you like a just a Steelers pennant. You may not notice that the colors are actually wrong here. That's because I got this pennant from a friend of mine who hand drew it on this canvas when we were in second grade. I've had it since then. It's hard for you to see. This this pennant is absolutely covered in signatures. Signatures of Pittsburgh Steelers players from the past 20 years. I have the signature of Bill Cower here on the back, who was the head coach of the Steelers for 15 years. This may look like a, um, just a sports pennant, but to me, this represents something far deeper than that. You see, my family is a family full of Steeler fans. I spent many summers traveling with my grandfather to training camp, where I got most of these signatures from. We'd drive out, he'd take me, we'd go, we'd visit. Um, we'd spend many Sunday afternoons watching... Steeler games, I'm not sure. It's been many, many, many years since I missed watching a Steelers game. We, would, uh, we didn't have cable, and the Steelers were not on in Philadelphia, so my dad would make me hold the little, the little antenna and walk around the room till we found the least fuzzy version of the game we could from coming from across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, we, I had this cassette tape of the, uh, a summary, it's a 20-minute summary of the 1992 Pittsburgh Steelers season, and I wore that VHS tape out when I was in elementary school. I would watch it over and over and over, and I became a Steeler fan. My family is a Steelers fan. We often would say that we bleed black and gold, that it's not a hobby, it's not a casual fandom, but it's deeply embedded in our very way of life. See, my family's not just Steeler fans. We actually live the Steeler's way of life. A way of life has a set of values. A way of life has a set of practices. A way of life has heroes. It has places. It has origin stories and artifacts that go along with it that represent what it is, a way of life has a specific calendar. If you know, the NFL calendar, that's the way of life of the NFL team, is one o'clock on Sunday afternoons in the fall. It's the calendar of the way of life. It has holy days. It has feast days, and it has fast days. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like, As a Pittsburgh Steelers family, we lived. We didn't just cheer for the Steelers on Sunday, but we lived this out. It was a day in, day out. It shaped what we thought, what we believed, where we went. It organized our calendar. It shaped our view of others. So when I met Andy Viger, it's very hard for me to love Andy Viger because Andy Viger is a Cleveland Browns fan, right? And that's determined by the Pittsburgh Steelers way of life. It has specific food And drink. A few years ago, I went to a Steelers playoff game with my brother, my dad, and a friend, and it was like negative 10 degrees. And yet, we went to the stadium and we got a Primanti Brothers sandwich, which is the official food of the Pittsburgh Steelers. A way of life has foods and drinks and specific words. If you live in Pittsburgh, you don't say y'all, you say yins. Our yins go into the game. It's a specific language, words, and phrases. And a, a way of life has a community of people where the bond that they share transcends the other things that are going on and other differences that they may experience. And this is my life as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I felt like an exile living in Philadelphia, but this was our life. And I say all that because the way in which we follow Jesus is also a way of life. It's not just a religion. It's not just a belief system. It's not just a set of morals that we're supposed to do. It's not just religious practices. It's not just the practice of coming into this room at four o'clock on Sundays. It's not even just a relationship with Jesus. That to be a Christian is to follow Jesus in his way of life, a way of life that has values and practices and origin stories and artifacts and calendars and all the things that go along with any way of life. To follow Jesus is to have a holistic way of life. Another example that someone brought up this week as we were talking about this was, I don't know if you've ever worked out at the YMCA. We've, I've used this illustration before, but you can, go and come and, you can come and go from the YMCA as a hobby, right? You can be there when you want to and not be there when you don't want to, but if, have you ever joined a CrossFit gym? CrossFit is not just a hobby, CrossFit is a way of life. It's a community, it has a set schedule, you come, you go, everything in your life becomes organized around CrossFit, and this is the way that the scriptures and the way Jesus talks about what it means to follow him. is not just to assent to something, but to actually embrace and follow a whole way of life. We're starting a new series today called The Way of Jesus we're going to walk through Mark 8 through 10, and we're going to ask the question what does it actually look like to follow Jesus in everyday life here in Charlotte in 2021? What is the way of life that Jesus calls us to, and how do we actually live it? I want to look at those specifics. We're going to use three categories as we walk through. We're going to talk about the way of life, of the, or the way of Jesus as being with Jesus, things that bring us into his presence becoming like Jesus, things that allow us to become like him, and then doing what Jesus does. These three categories are, they make up all of the set of practices that go with the way of life. Being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing what he did. We're going to walk through Mark 8 through 10, um, and I'll talk about the context of where we're starting today. But as we go through this, in every sermon, for this set of sermons, we're going, to have, we're going to find three things. We're going to look at a teaching of Jesus. He's going to tell us something about his way of life. This is the way that I live. This is what it means to follow me. I are going to see that, what a teaching. And we're going to see how that teaching confronts our way of life. Right? We, have, we have a way of life. We all have ways of life that we live. So we're going to see Jesus' way of life. And we're going to see how that confronts our way of life. And then we're going to look at specific practices that we can adopt as Christians to kind of orient us and form us into the way that Jesus is calling. Now, some of these you've called, or we've called spiritual disciplines in the past. There's going to be a lot of these specific spiritual disciplines that I want to talk about as we walk through this. It's easy to talk about the way of Jesus as this like abstract thing, but to bring it into everyday life, to what does this mean to practice this, will be to actually put hands and feet to it, to actually do it with actual practices and rhythms. And so we're going to talk about these. And some of them will be familiar to you practices like prayer, fasting, or maybe Sabbath. Some may be new. We're going to talk about the practice of examine, the practice of solitude, the practice of contemplative prayer. And then still other things, uh, other practices you'll be familiar with, but maybe not as thinking of it as a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice. Things like community or forgiveness or being with children. These are things that the scriptures call us to as practices and that we ought to devote ourselves to. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks. i want to start today with this passage that that Ellen read. It's going to focus on the most foundational aspect of the way of Jesus, the thing that summarizes the way that Jesus lived and the purpose of his life and what he's calling us to more than anything else. And two, two simple things I want you to see today. First, the way that Jesus achieves victory, and then, the way that we receive it. The way that Jesus achieves victory and then the way that we receive it. So let's look into this passage, Luke 8, 31. The context for this, if you go back a couple of verses, if you have your Bible, this is where we finished up in Mark last, I think it was in January. And this is this pivot point at the very center of the, of the story of Mark. The first eight chapters, Jesus has been revealing his identity and he's been doing these things and teaching all these people. And at the end of this section, chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus asks to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they're like, or who, first he asks, who do other people say? And they give him the list and then they look, he looks right at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at him and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Really, you are the one, Jesus, who is going to restore and redeem Israel. So that's where, that's the context of what we're about to read. Okay, So Peter just acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's going to restore Israel. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this right now. And then I can see Jesus saying, you know, boys, come on over here. We're going to go in this room. We're going to have a strategy session. Okay, I'm I'm the Messiah now. You've acknowledged that. We know that. We're on the same page. I'm the redeemer of Israel. Let's go into this conference room and have a little strategy session. And Mark records that this is what happens in the strategy session. Jesus says, and he began to teach them that the son of man, which is another Old Testament way to talk about the Messiah. So he's not denying that he's the Messiah. He's saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. And he begins to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And Jesus is like, hey, yes, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm not like any Messiah that you were expecting. Right? It's like, this is not the Messiah that you're looking for. Right? This is not what they are expecting. You can see Peter, Peter's response. It says, and Peter took him aside to begin to rebuke him. Or you just see Peter like grabbing Jesus and pulling him out into the hall and being like, dude, Stop it. Like why are you saying this? You can't you can't be saying this in there in front of those people. Like they, they need to be pumped up, they need to be encouraged, they need they need to know that this is going to lead to victory. What you gotta stop, you gotta stop it. Let's stop saying this. It's like it's hard to underestimate maybe the, the shock value of what Jesus has just said to his disciples and to Peter. Because for for the for the Jews, the Messiah was going to make Israel great again, right? Like this is their plan. Jesus, the Messiah, whoever the Messiah is, is gonna come in and he's gonna restore Israel to its prior glory. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a leader who's gonna come and lead them to the White House, lead them to the victory, lead them to the Super Bowl. Like, they're looking for victory and that's what the whole thing had been about. And now you get Jesus saying that he's gonna go and be rejected and be killed and suffer many things. It's like if, if you were a, a staffer for, I don't know, pick your favorite governor. We'll just use our governor, right? Roy Cooper. So you're a staffer for Roy Cooper and you in your heart, you want him to run for president. And so one day he comes to you and he says, hey, um, thanks for doing all this hard work for me. What do you, like, where do you think I could end up? Like, what do you think my chances are to become president? You look him right in the eye and you're like, you are going to be the next president of the United States. And he's like, okay, come over on Thursday to my house. I want you to work on my campaign. And you go over to his house on Thursday and you sit in his living room and you drink a glass of wine with him and he says, okay, so I'm going to head up to Washington and four weeks from now I'm going to be arrested for fraud. I'm going to be publicly humiliated. I'm going to be kicked out of the Democratic Party. I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life. And you're like, what? Did we, did we just, what? Didn't you just say you were going like to... Do you, do you get the confusion of Peter? Peter's like, this is not what I was expecting. Like, This is not going to work out the way... That I thought, and it's understandable. Like all of the Jewish literature had pointed to this fact that the Messiah was going to restore and redeem Israel. And and for all of us, this it's just as counterintuitive for us as it is for Peter, right? We who wants to play for a football team where the coach is advocating for fumbling and interceptions and getting sacked? Like nobody nobody wants to play for that team, right? Who wants to Who wants to work? Do any of you want to work for a company where the CEO is like pro losing money? or like pro the stock price going down, like you want, to, you want to go to a college that's not listed on the U.S. News and World Report top 100, or like where the football team never wins, like where I went to college. It's like, this, who wants to go to that college? Who wants to work for that company? Who wants to play for that football team? We, we want winners. Like this is what we want. We want victory in politics. We want to vote for the winner. We, in sports, we want to cheer for the winning team. And, we want to work for a company that's succeeding. We want things to go right, and that's what we're looking for. We want our leaders to lead us there. We want presidents that will lead us there. We want CEOs that will lead us to victory. We want pastors that will lead our church to be whatever. We want winners. The question we have to stop maybe and ask at this point is like, how, how is that working for you? Like, how is the pursuit of victory working for you? Like this is what has led us to be overbooked and overworked, overscheduled, over-entertained. This is our lives. Like we want to win. So we're organizing our lives around getting to that next thing that feels like winning. We want the right. And so we're we're often just overwhelmed by this fear of missing out from winning. Whatever that is. We, we want the best. Vacation, that position at work, right? The housing market right now. There's like, I, I know a lot of you have bought and sold houses recently. Like the stress that people experience because they need to win the housing market exchange. Like you feel that you, I got to sell my house for more than I, more than I'm gonna buy. Like you, and we get in this tizzy because we need to win. We need to get the best thing, or maybe it's more mundane things, right? You need to get that last table at that restaurant. There's only one table left, one seat left available. Or you, you need that last roll of toilet paper that's on the shelf, right? you got to have it. You want to win. It's we want the president, the coach, a boss, a savior that will lead us to victory. That's what we, that's what we want. So you, we can at least understand and relate to Peter's kind of confu- confusion here. But yet Jesus doesn't just like laugh him off. Right? Look at what Jesus says. It's, it's a little strong, I think, for my taste. He says, but turning and seeing his disciples... So like him and Peter are over in the hall and he like looks in the conference room and he's like, they're there, they're listening, they're overhearing. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now the word Satan in Greek just means adversary, adversary. So he's not necessarily calling Peter, capital S, Satan, as some person. He's saying, you, by saying that, are my adversary, just take a minute to think about what that means. Saying, hey, Peter, I hear you. You want to make Israel great again. That's not the right team. That's the wrong team. And if you're on that team, Peter, you're not on my team. Like my team is the team of being rejected and suffering and dying. That's my team. And if you're if you want to win, then you're not just on a different team, you're actually against me. Because my team is doing things. A different way. I am going to achieve victory, but I'm not going to do it the same way that you're expecting. We really need to stop and consider what that means for us. Jesus says, this is the way that I'm going. I'm going through suffering and death and pain and sorrow. That's the way I'm going. And if you're not going that way with me, then you're against me. And so, this is radically upside down from the way that we typically live our lives. Who we typically choose to align ourselves with. Isn't it? Or am I just, am I the only one that thinks that? We want to align ourselves with winners. And Jesus says, no, this isn't the way that I achieve victory. See, Jesus is not using a strategy of competition and campaigning and overcoming and winning. He's, he achieves victory through rejection, suffering. And death, and his life bears this out, right? He spends time with outcasts and loners and losers and sinners and tax collectors. Like this is who he's spending his time with—the the losers. He, his disciples are underwhelming to say the least, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John—they're not—they're not exactly the best of the bunch. He didn't go and like find the road scholars. Like he's like, "Hey, do you have a pulse? Come with me," right? And they're like, "Okay." Like This isn't exactly the, the, like, the dream team. Jesus spends a lot of time alone. The crowds come, and they're hearing him, and he disappears. Like he, he tells his disciples over and over and over again, don't tell anybody about this, because he knows that if people find out that he's the Messiah, they're going to want to make him a king, and he's like, that's not the way I do things. And in the end, Jesus ends up on the cross, exactly the place that he predicted. This is the first thing. It's very clear here. It's very clear throughout the entire story. The way Jesus achieves victory is through rejection, suffering, and death. That's how he does it. That's the way of Jesus, the way of rejection, suffering, and death. Now, what does he do next? Verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, so now he's talking to everybody. They're out of the conference room. He's talking to everybody, and he says this to everyone. If anyone would come after me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this is the gospel according to Peter. Mark's writing it. He's gotten his information from Peter. Mark's not there at this moment. He's gotten his information from Peter. It's not... It's very unlikely, in fact, it's probably impossible that Jesus actually said, "Take up your cross." That's an idiom for suffering. It wasn't The Jews did not go around using the cross as an idiom for suffering in that moment. They weren't using the Roman cross as like a way to just generically talk about suffering. This is Peter remembering back to what Jesus said, and he summarizes what Jesus was teaching in that moment, with the phrase, "Take up his cross." Like The thing that summarizes Jesus' entire life for Peter in two words is the cross. It's like Jesus is saying to Peter, he's saying to the disciples, he's saying to every, all the crowd there, hey, I'm going to the White House via the cross. Who's coming? Who's coming with me? You want to come? This is the way we're going. This is the only way that we're going. He's like, you want to be on Team Jesus? Team Jesus is over here at the cross. You want to, you want to be a partner with Jesus Incorporated, Jesus Incorporated located right here at the foot of the cross. This is where I'm going. If you want to come, this is where I'm going to be. One of the commentators said it really clearly for me. Following Christ in self-denial and even in suffering is a necessary means of salvation. Not a grounds of salvation, but a means. One cannot follow Jesus except on the way of self-denial and the cross. Now it's important to see this here that when we're talking about the cross, there's not a literal cross that you and I have to pick up, right? Like we're not—he's not saying, "Go out on the street and pick up a literal cross." And the, the, sometimes we think of the cross as like there's some kind of obstacle that I'm gonna, some burden I'm gonna carry, some specific thing. It's, don't try and figure out what your cross is. This also isn't. This is really important to hear. The cross here is not some sort of cruel entrance exam to like see if you qualify to be with Jesus. It's not what it is. Like I had a friend. He was is he's now an Army Ranger. The entrance exam to go, to be able to take the test, like the three month preparation test for Army Rangers, was so extensive that everyone in this room would fail it, like within the first 30 seconds. Like it's, it's cruel, like take up your Ranger cross and make sure that you qualify to go with Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. What he's saying is, I'm going to be over here on the cross. If you want to be with me, come and join me. I'm I'm here. Come and be with me. He's saying embrace suffering. Embrace rejection. Embrace self-denial. Embrace pain. Embrace loss. Embrace being with lowly people. He's saying give up earthly ambitions for winning. Be willing to give up dreams and aspirations He's saying, live the kind of life where victory is with the suffering. This is the Beatitudes. Victory is with the suffering and the weak and the sick and the poor in spirit. This is where victory is. Jesus says, if you want to be with me, come and be with me. This is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be here on the cross. He's inviting us to join him there, to view those kind of things as the path to victory. Now, this is a very hard teaching. <laughs> Do you know that? <laughs> this is a very hard, take up your cross, and this is where I'm going to be. If you want to be with me, I'm on the cross. Come on over. But as we were talking about it this week, it was a really good point brought up that I wanted to pass along. Because salvation doesn't have a price. Salvation is offered to us freely. Right, it's free. It's a f- the free gift of God is salvation. There's no price involved, but the cost is enormous. And if I want to illustrate this, I need some help illustrating this. So I'm going to go back to my Steelers illustration here. Andy, you're a Browns fan, right? So, would, if I decided I wanted to be a Browns fan, would you have me? Say yes. For the purpose of the illustration, say yes. <laughs> Andy would have me. Would you charge me an entrance fee? Oh, gosh. You wrecked the illustration. Would Cleveland charge me an entrance fee to become a Browns fan? No. Would I have to take a test? No. Right? If I wanted to be a Browns fan, what's the price? It's free. What is the cost to me in this moment to become a Browns fan? It's enormous. Right? It is, I have spent 34 years of my life every single Sunday cheering for the Steelers to give that up, to give up my people and my places and my history. The cost is enormous, but the price is free. Jesus says, come over here. It's free. Entrance is free. But the cost is going to be enormous. Because what it means is you have to embrace suffering, rejection, and death as the way to victory. Who, why would anyone do this? Well, Jesus, he gives four reasons. We can't cover them, but he gives four reasons. Go back and look. Each of them start with the word for. It's a reason why you would take up your cross, but just verse 35, for whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will, save it. Here's why you would do this. Because if Jesus really is the Messiah, and I believe deeply in my heart that he is, there's no other way to have victory than through the cross, than this way, than by embracing the way of suffering, rejection, and death. I think to some of you, you probably receive that as comfort, right? If you are not experiencing a lot of winning in your life, and that some of you, you have pain, sorrow in your life, and you feel like you're rejected and feel like things are not going well, this is a great message for you. <laughs> things are going the way of victory for you, according to this passage. Others of us, this is convicting and challenging to consider that if our life is spent pursuing victory as we define it, Jesus says, get behind me. <laughs> You're not considering the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus achieves his victory through rejection, sorrow, and death. And we receive that victory from him by joining him in that. Now, the last few minutes, I just want to give you a few thoughts on what does that actually look like to practice. What does that mean? Right, it's a great idea. Well, it's a hard idea, but it's right here It's in the text. It's an idea. What does it mean to practice it? What kinds of practices, what kinds of spiritual disciplines can help us become the kind of people that will do that? Because I don't know about you, I ain't doing that just for fun. Like, I'm not going to do that naturally. If I just wake up in the morning and go my natural way, I am not going to be pursuing the way of rejection and sorrow and pain. I'm going to be pursuing the, the path of least resistance. So if we're going to become this kind of person, if we're going to embrace the cross, if we're going to go on the way of the cross, we have to actually do it on purpose. What are some practices? See, our practices, spiritual disciplines, like we talked about last fall, are not magic, right? If you you can go back, last September I did three sermons on spiritual formation, really good, important theological background to what we're talking about here. Doing these practices doesn't make Jesus love you anymore. It doesn't make you a Christian, right? Doing practices doesn't make you any more of a Christian than like owning soccer cleats makes you a soccer player, right? It's like, you can't play soccer without the cleats, but having the cleats doesn't make you a soccer player. Same thing here. You can't be a mature, growing follower of Jesus without these practices, but doing them alone doesn't make you a Christian. In high school, I had a played soccer for a few years, and we had a two a days in August, where we'd come in at 7 a.m., and we would run, 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 and we'd go home at 9 and just sleep until three when we'd come back for actual soccer practice. And those early morning things, they don't feel like they have anything to do with soccer. They don't make you a soccer player, but you can't be a good soccer player without doing those things, without showing up and running the drills. And this is what spiritual practice is about. We, we will never be mature, growing, faithful followers of Jesus without intentional spiritual practice. So just one spiritual practice today that I want to highlight. And it's what it's the spiritual practice that I'm calling self-denial. Self-denial. Now, if you just open up a spiritual disciplines handbook, you're not going to find the practice of self-denial in there because it's a little bit too broad to actually find its you know, page. But here's what I mean by it. It's like almost all spiritual practices are, by definition, self-denial because they constrain us in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> they force us to deny our own like, appetites, our own pleasures, our own way to go. They constrain us. They limit us by practicing them. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago I shared a story about um, some heart palpitations I had when we were building our house last year. And some of you have experienced this where you, you're you just going along in your life and something medical spe- especially happens. Maybe it's an illness or it's an accident or something Or something happens to a friend of yours. Somebody has a heart attack. And that experience like brings you this lightning clarity about life. Or you've heard people say this, like this bad thing happened to me and I had... Now I have clarity in my life about what's really important. And these, these experiences of limitation, they often lead to clarity and focus and flourishing, which if we follow Jesus is what we would expect. Anyway, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, "If we look at the way these various disasters serve as advances in spirituality among our friends and people we admire across the centuries, why wait? If we look around and see that calamities and sicknesses and sorrows often lead people to grow spiritually, why would we wait for them to happen to us? Why would we wait for them to happen to us? Eugene Peterson calls the practices of self-denial voluntary disaster now, I'm not like talking about self-hatred or self-harm. I'm saying, what would it look like to intentionally introduce limits and difficulties and struggles into your life to train yourself to walk on the way of the cross? What would it look like if you did that? I'll just give you a few examples to finish up. The first suggestion is starting really small. Tish Warren says, everybody wants a revolution. Nobody wants to do the dishes. This encapsulates everything we've been talking about. We want to win. We want the big picture. We don't want to do the hard small thing that makes us self-sacrifice. We want eager. We were bigger for like big payoffable things. But like what would it look like to commit to do something that you don't want to do? <laughs> to come to church regularly or community group. Those things can be hard. They don't necessarily fill my soul every time that I'm at community group. But committing to them is a way of Self denial, of not allowing myself to just on a whim decide that today I just don't want to do this because it's hard. What if you left work early, giving up like growth in your career to do something that doesn't bring you advancement? Right? Or committing to regular prayer time. Like anytime you commit a chunk of time to prayer, you're committing to not do anything else during that time. <laughs> This is the basics of spiritual practice. What about associating with people in your job or your neighborhood or even here in this room that you feel like would tarnish your reputation? That's self-denial. It's a way of living into the cross, following Jesus to the cross, setting aside time to do things that don't benefit you. We tend to choose what we do based on what benefits us. I'm not prescribing what you should or shouldn't do. I'm inviting you to sort of imagine what would it look like to put intentional practices in your life that lead the way to the cross. One of the big ones in church history that we're not going to talk about a lot right now for time's sake is fasting. Fasting is an example of this. It's been considered by the entire history of the church to be an essential practice for spiritual growth because it trains our body to follow Jesus. Jesus abstention from food for a period of time and extending that into technology or alcohol or other habits and places and appetites fasting from them. All of these things are sort of a buffet of ways just for you to consider. What practices do you have in your life that constrain your generic drive towards winning, leading you back to the cross? This is the question from this text. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Are you going to follow him? You want to follow him to the cross, and he—he he achieved victory for us through it, and that's where he's located. <laughs> he's located in those places, and he's so—so so he's saying, "I know the cross is hard. I know you don't want to go there, Peter. But guess what? That's where I am. If you want me, that's where you can find me." Let's pray. Jesus, this is a hard teaching. It's much easier to simply read about it. It's much easier to simply talk about it up here than it is to go and live. So Father, I ask that you give us the the grace and the power of your spirit to walk in the way of the cross, to spend time considering what ways you're calling us, Towards the, towards the cross, towards the way that you have walked and the way where victory is. Do it for us, we pray. And Father, we ask that you'd bless our gifts, our offerings as we give each week um, to the ministry and mission of our church. Make it fruitful for your kingdom, not fruitful in the way that we expect, Father, but fruitful for the cross. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.